Hello and welcome to the Investing on the Go podcast. Today I'm joined by Paul Marriage, the Elite Rated Manager of the Telworth UK Smaller Companies Fund. Paul, thank you very much for joining us today. Hi, morning, James. Good to, good to see you this morning. And you. Uh, Paul, you were recently quoted as saying that um, the companies you meet, meet remain on the front foot. Uh, they're doing deals, recovering revenue, uh, and learning a lot from last year. Um, could you perhaps give us some examples of this? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's one of the really interesting themes of last year, which was where, if you go back a year, we, we, we entered 2020, and, and, you know, it's not to be galling to say it, but we were all pretty optimistic about, like, you know, it felt like um, the political landscape in the UK had, had changed and was getting a bit more permanency, whether we liked that or not, but political certainty. Um, most companies we were talking to had had fantastic January, February times in trading, you know, economic, economically we're in quite a good place. Then, you know, we all had a big COVID hit, and we're not talking about COVID too much. We hear so much about COVID. But clearly, that was a massive shock to, to all companies to go from 100% of revenue down to uh, and revenue that was really flying and, and going really well down to 10 or 20% or zero in some cases. Um, so a massive shock for us all, clearly. But, you know, shock for anyone running a business. Um, uh, and actually, how did companies respond to that? I think it's one of the, you know, it's actually quite a credit to the UK economy, and, and, and you could argue, you know, commerce globally. But... Companies adapted really, really fast, I think, made big and rapid changes to the businesses, the way they worked. You know, we all moved online very quickly, didn't we? And that's generally seemed to work for most people. So once we went through that shock phase of March, April, companies adjusted pretty quickly. And I think we were quite surprised, really, when we came back into August and September, when companies were coming back to see us, they were saying, actually, guys, yeah, horrible shock, uh, but revenues are recovering. In fact, revenues are recovering quicker uh, than we expected them to. And actually, that means that we, we can get ourselves back into a sort of 1920 mindset of trying to grow these businesses um, and, uh, you know, looking for acquisitions if you're an acquisitive business, uh, developing new products, launching new products, finding new customers, doing all the sort of good stuff you want small companies to be doing. Uh, so, so that was very much the message from companies starting from the back end of the summer. And we saw that come through to the year end. Now, Remember, a lot of these companies that perhaps looked a bit stressed in terms of their financials back in March had raised money, uh, had made themselves stronger. So they were coming into this kind of reinvigoration phase in a slight, slightly better condition. So it was great to see some companies you know, move that little bit step further, uh, you know, making acquisitions. So a couple of ones maybe worth mentioning. Um, Inspects. Inspects is an interesting story, we think. Um, it is a spectacle frame manufacturer. The spectacle frame Industry globally is dominated by a couple of massive European players, and then there's lots of smaller ones. Uh, but one of the smaller ones, in fact, the biggest of the small, uh, is a UK listed business called Inspects, based in Bath. Great website if you're interested in it, it's really informative. Um, and Inspect bought their number one German competitor called Eisenbach um, in November last year. And the deal was completed in December. And that was a great example of, of using an equity that got through a t- tricky time. You know, if you think that the, the spectacle frame makers supply chain is very much Asia into Europe, a bit of manufacturing in the UK, but it's a, it's a global supply chain, customers everywhere. So, you know, all the typical things you'd expect from the pandemic um, impacts there. Uh, but company managing that quickly, working out how they can manufacture specs in, in, in a safe environment in their, 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 their facilities globally, and then saying, right, we're ready to do another deal, and probably taking advantage of maybe lower valuations, global uncertainty to do that. That was a good one. Uh, another interesting one, different sort of business entirely, um, something called Acrol, um, uh, sort of uh, a business that, that makes tissue papers, Lurol, that kind of stuff in Accrington, Acrol. Um, and... 
they were a business that floated, had a bit of a mess, bit of a corporate governance disaster two or three years ago. New management came in, rebuilt the business in terms of the way it was presented to the city, the way things like HSE, it had a few health and safety issues, sorting those out, getting back on the front foot. That was COVID was probably pretty good for them. We all read about those queues of people looking for lure on the supermarkets, UK manufacturer in a good place. Um, so use the strength they had from the COVID environment. So the boost they got from a challenge they weren't expecting um, to acquire another uh, tissue manufacturer, um, you know, consolidating their position in the UK, that's Acrol. So a couple of examples of companies with very different COVID experiences reacting. Maybe one more interesting one, which not acquisition-based, is a business realising that their end market's changing and they need to adjust their products for that, would be Vitech. Um, so Vitech uh, is... Everything about image capture. So, you know, tripods where the business started, they're still massive in tripods. Um, but a lot of the communications you have around a studio um, between the cameramen and the editors. Uh, and you can imagine a big Hollywood film environment or, you know, Netflix blockbuster type um, productions, hundreds of people running around with cameras and messages and all this sort of stuff. You can't do that in a COVID environment. So much less people on set, much more technology. And actually, Vitex technology is all about capturing the image, sending it to editing and reducing the number of people scurrying about. So, you know, COVID has suddenly created a really good opportunity for them to accelerate really their kind of um, next generation products, which were coming anyway, but, you know, giving them a great boost. Very interesting. Uh, and you own a couple of companies in the portfolio that have been hit particularly hard. Uh, I think you've got Jim Group and Hollywood Bowl, for example. Uh, do you still own these? And what do you like about them? Yeah, absolutely still own them. Um, so, you know, any consumer-facing business, um, particularly anything in the hospitality or leisure industry, as we well know, totally taken out by this and remains in a really horrible place. You remember most of these companies, when they came to see us in uh, April, May, June, that kind of Q2, what do we need to do to secure our balance sheet until things get normal again? So, yeah, these businesses not only face a shock then, but face a continuing, you know, period of, of uncertainty. So, raise capital. Uh, secure the balance sheet. Both those companies have raised enough capital to secure their balance sheet, you know, well into to this year. So wouldn't expect a second raise. You never say never, do you? But you wouldn't expect a second raise. So they raised enough, good thing. And then I think one of the key themes there, and we have talked about it uh, a little bit, is what we call supply side winners. So if you think of a supply side of pubs, restaurants, gyms, cinemas, bowling alleys, all these things that that you know, up until March last year, we used to enjoy spending our, our, our leisure time and money um, doing. So those industries, quite diverse ownership bases. We've got lots of private operators. Um, we've got lots of really large private equity businesses. So, you know, so we think that Hollywood Bowl, Tempo Bowling, um, and Gym Group, Discount Gyms, are great supply-side winner examples because within their industry – they're in a, in a tough industry, they're relatively the strongest players. So they should come out of this with market share gain, ability to get the best sites and the best balance sheets. Um, and, and when you say supply side winner, what you mean is a lot of supply of the industry is going to be taken out as all their competitors go bust. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do. The demand side is me and you going to the gym, um, going to do tempin bowling or whatever. And the supply side is the number of gyms and tempin bowling places we can go to. Um, if there's way too many gyms, we can choose our gyms and we're the price leader. We will force the price down. If there aren't enough gyms, those people who've got the best gyms will be able to generate the best profits. So the gym sector is a really interesting one, actually, because in probably, you know, 19, 18, 19, there were too many gyms in the UK. And we were beginning to see pre-COVID a real crunch on gym capacity because, you know, there's a lot of competition out there and probably too many low-cost gyms for the number of people who wanted to go to them. 
So there's two big national players, Pure Gym and uh, the Gym Group. Um, Pure Gym, private equity owned, pretty dicey balance sheet, probably got less flexibility than the Gym Group that can come back to its shareholders like us and say, look, guys, we can see the future here in terms of where things might go. We know about all the uncertainties. Give us a bit of cash now at a sensible price, and we could be a supply side winner on the other side. So I think two examples of companies, yes, massively hit, but that have fixed their balance sheets, and we think will come come out the other side stronger for longer. Is there not a lot of hope built into the future, though? Because it feels like there's a bit of a disconnect between uh, the stock market and the real world at the moment. I mean, the UK, yes, the stock market is down a bit, but it feels like it's not done nearly as badly as what the, the reality of the situation is for yeah. a lot of businesses and a lot of people. I think that's a really, really fair point, James. Something we talk about an awful lot. Um, so stock market versus reality. So UK reality is uh, currently we're all locked down. Uh, a decent proportion of the population who are working are effectively having their, their, their wages supported by government. And when that ends, you know, where will we be? Will, will we see a big surge in unemployment? Everyone's forecasted, but it keeps getting delayed. Um, and if that happens, presumably we'll have a big consumer recession. And will there be anybody who wants to go to a, a gym or a bowling alley? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really valid concern and something we definitely manage in our portfolios and something where our international focus, not just, you know, we've got gyms and bowls, and, uh, but we've got, you know, international Gooch and Housegoes and, and Inspects and businesses that are, are very international, which we think play a a slightly wider uh, frame. I think stock market versus reality is a very interesting story because if we look at the UK stock market, we've got extremes in the UK. I mean, AIM was an exceptional market last year, up 20% in aggregate um, against the FTSE 100 down 14%, you know, rough numbers. So 35% divergence between two indices in the same stock market. Well, AIM was driven by a very narrow group of sort of computer gaming stocks, COVID winners, e-commerce, um, uh, and ESG, and, and anything that was kind of slightly green, tingy, growthy, batteries, hydrogen, that kind of stuff, has gone absolutely bonkers. And it's not difficult to find a bubbly-looking share price chart on AIM, you know, a stock that was uh, in the doldrums for decades or, or years into, into this year, in, into the final quarter of last year, so 2020, suddenly doubled and tripled, maybe even been a 10-bagger on not very much. So... I think there's a little bit we need to be concerned about there is, is is there a bit of a retail bubble, particularly in small caps in AIM, particularly in hope companies without a lot of revenue, but where you know they could change the world. They might have the next fantastic, uh, you know, hydrogen energy thing. They may have a great uh, COVID drug, whatever it is. Uh, and we need to be careful. We've seen that before. We've seen it in the tech boom. Um, I've been running money over 20 years and I've seen these kind of, that, that does worry me a bit. And, and, and I think it's something, you know, we don't invest in many of those things, but it would be bad news if retail investors got caught up in a lot of these things where a valuation of several hundreds of millions for a business which is maybe worth 25 or 50 million is not good news because generally bubbles get burst. You know, you, you, yeah. you, can, you can see a bubble, you might be able to smell a bubble, but when it pops, I'm afraid you've heard a bubble after it's popped. So, uh, it, you know, got to be really careful about some of that stuff. Thank you. Very interesting. Uh, and we've got a Brexit deal now. Um, is this going to be a big help to UK smaller companies? Uh, what are they saying to you about the reality of not being in the EU now? Okay, yeah. So we've got a Brexit deal. That's it. Getting a Brexit deal, I'm not going to talk about any politics here. Um, getting about a Brexit deal was, was good in that it created an element of certainty about trading. And 
that lingering uncertainty in, in lots of financials. We're always going to do a deal. It's always going to be long UK. It's always going to do well. Actually, you know, sitting there, I think we all thought we were always going to do it, but actually sitting there with no deal so late was a nervy place to be as an investor. And you could see some of the gyrations in, in December. Um, so that is a good thing for, for, for UK market in general. And it helps to tick that sort of box ticking process we, we need to do to get back on the global kind of no longer underweight list, which is really important for the UK is to be, you know, at least an equal weight market, if not overweight, because the UK is pretty cheap. Um, so, you know, we had the Brexit referendum. We became a sort of market persona non grata for a long time. Other markets did well. We did badly very much last year, generally, uh, up the cap scale particularly. Um, and then the Brexit deal uh, has sort of said, well, OK, maybe the UK has got uh, an established relationship with the EU. We can look at it like Sweden, Norway, Switzerland, whatever, any other European country that's outside the Eurozone. Um and you know, look at its attributes. And of course, its attributes are and always have been a big and mature stock market, an open and flexible economy, um, quite you know, big knowledge, pharma, high tech, education, you know, all the sort of things that have made the UK a pretty good place to invest um, you know, f- for most of the kind of post-war era. So we're not reliant on commodity industries, et cetera, et cetera. So um, that, that's all good news uh, in terms of just making us investable again. And that overseas money, which is hopefully going to come back to the UK market, does that filter down to smaller companies or is most of that just going into the FTSE 100? No, I think, I mean, the FTSE 100 has, uh, has had a surge at the beginning of the year, hasn't it, particularly? You know, I think anybody running money down the caps going, oh, God, this is a pain, you know, the market's racing away. Um, and calm down a bit, but still looking at a pretty strong start. So, you know, I think logically larger investors go for liquidity, FTSE 100 there, you know, lots of the things that were going up there were kind of global things as well, like mining oil type, you know, the classic FTSE 100 plays. Um, so what we would normally see would be a sort of larger cap led, you know, growth as people put the money in the market and they go, large cap, oh, actually, you know, that, that's performed well. Mid caps, what do I like in mid cap? Well, I like UK domestics, there's a lot of those in mid cap. And then, it might even be domestic investors in the UK. So actually, where's the value in the UK now? I'll sell my house bills that just got up 40% to overseas investors. And actually, the value in the UK is probably down the cap scale, UK small caps, potentially. So um, yes, money coming in the top is good for the hopper. Uh, but those, you know, if we if we read a, a global wealth manager, you know, one of the big global names is saying, we're going to close our underweight UK. We're not suddenly going to see a load of money coming into UK small cap. But it's interesting that the institutional investors... Um, and the wealth managers that make up our funds alongside retail investors have also been phoning us up and saying, yeah, actually, you know, think, we think it's probably time to be adding to our UK small cap weighting. So a lot more incoming, which would suggest, you know, that trickle down is actually happening at small cap level. So, you know, I think you can look at small cap this year and think, well, bearing in mind what we said about some bubbly parts of the market, uh, you can say that, you know, the UK smaller end of the market is relatively modestly valued. So, you know, small caps are trading on low to mid-teens PEs. Their forecast earnings growth is over 20%. Obviously, a lot of recovery in there. But, you know, that, that, if that 20% is true uh, and, you know, there's reasonable chance this time around it could be, then these aren't racing multiples. We're not on a monster recovery multiple at the bottom of the market. And we've got a massive range of companies to invest in. We don't just have to buy, um, you know, reopening plays or retailers that have been bombed out. We can buy high-quality businesses with international earnings, um, on low multiples. So, you know, I think that, um, you know, in that respect, the UK does look quite attractive. So you're a combination of interesting things to own that are pretty cheap relative to global markets. 
Just going back to the bit about uh, a UK company feeding back to us here on Brexit, uh, on the deal. You know, the actual Brexit deal, you know, to be honest, too early to have had any companies come back to us and say, don't like the look of the deal, it's going to be really difficult for us. But, you know, we are on, you know, recording this on the 18th of Jan, so um, quite early days for people to pipe up. To be honest, apart from a shortage of food in M&S in Paris, we've not seen as many headlines as we thought, have we, so far? I thought we'd see a lot more in the first couple of weeks in terms of, you know, all it needed was a telegenic spokeswoman for some niche industry to, or, or, or man, you know, to, 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 to pipe up about an issue they've got. And, you know, for BBC cameramen, ITV camera guys, you know, to be on the port side watching these sacks of stuff. Well, we've not really seen that, actually, which is interesting. Um, you can probably do without the Percy Pigs, I think, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, um, so I think really we're probably saying two things. We're saying the fact that a lot of companies did a lot more prep for this than they really wanted to fess up to. We saw this last time around um, that companies were doing a lot of no-deal Brexit prep 18 months ago. And that I think that work has, has stood pretty well for them. And I think there's a lot of companies who have done a bit of restructuring and stuff internally to help them out. They've got stock in the right places. So I do think companies have prepared for this. And to some extent, if companies were making a genuine no-deal focus on their preparations, which I think was probably higher than people went public on, then a deal is, is kind of like a soft result for them. So I think, think we're going to see a lot of companies coming back to us saying, actually, this is a bit of a nightmare, this new relationship with the EU. I think most companies are going to be getting used to it pretty quickly. I mean, to some extent, you know, getting used to this um, new EU deal versus getting used to a whole new COVID environment you know, it's, it, they've, they've had to face quite a few challenges and relatively the new EU relationship might not be as, as big a challenge as it would have been on its own. Yeah, when you put it like that, I guess it puts it in perspective. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. So, Paul, your company just recently celebrated its third anniversary. So, Yeah, what how, a party. <laughs> how's it been um, managing a new business in this environment? Yeah, well, it's, it, I guess if you'd asked me three years ago where did I want to be in three years' time, I think we've doubled our assets. Um, you know, we've launched a couple of new products. We've taken on uh, a new process. So kind of biz dev-wise and all the kind of cheesy MBA land, we've done a really good job. Um, if you actually look at um, what it's been like, it's been pretty hard work. I mean, you know, when you set up a new business, having been in you know, high-quality, um, long-term businesses like a, a Schroeder's, um, you, know, you know you shouldn't underestimate the challenge, but it's almost impossible to know what it's going to be like. So... Um, you know, I think that our third anniversary was a sort of sense of relief that we've probably got through the worst of COVID, uh, that, that our assets have remained pretty solid. Our clients have been very loyal, which is great. Um, and, you know, that we're, we're in a market which has been, you know, through the mill uh, and we're still intact and we've got some good products and, you know, we've got a decent performance story for people. So, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a massive challenge. Um, but I think it'd be fair to say that most of the time I've enjoyed it. Um, and I think, you know, we, we've had fantastic client support, which has been great. And, you know, that's kind of what you need. Uh, you know, would I have done anything differently? Not sure I would have had the levers to pull to have done much differently, really. Um, you know, we, we could have perhaps taken a less small cap risk three years ago. And to be honest, you know, we've been running a, a small cap focus and, and smaller end of small cap portfolio in a period when that part of the small cap market has been pretty grim. Um, we've had a bit of payback on that, I guess, more recently, which is good. Um, um, yeah, I'm enjoying it. It'll be, be, be interesting to see what I think about in five, you know, five years if we, if we continue to be kind of 
front foot and doing all the sort of stuff that we want our management teams to be doing. That's often the way I think about it, actually. How would you perceive us as a business if we were the other side of the desk and you were an investor? Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. That's been very interesting and best of luck for 2021. Thanks very much, James. Thanks very much for your time. Uh, and hopefully you found it useful. And if you'd like to learn more about the Telworth UK Smaller Companies Fund, please visit our website, fundcaliber.com. And please also remember to, to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast. Please remember we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at your time of listening.